0: Well, good afternoon, nearly good evening actually. Uh, welcome to this afternoon session of the China Research Group. My name's Tom Tugendhat. I'm the chair of this uh, outfit and I'm an MP and we have some fantastic guests with us today. Now in no particular order, we have Ike Freeman who's uh, written a fantastic paper for the China Research Group, uh, which was published uh, today. So if you haven't read it, please go online and you will see what that's all about. It's definitely worth reading. Then we've got Maya Nuvens, who uh, is with us as well. And we've also got Jonathan Hillman. Now, rather than uh, introducing them, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves just very briefly before we kick off. So Ike, why don't you go first?
1: Thanks, Tom. Uh, I am a doctoral candidate in China Studies at Balliol College, Oxford. Uh, my background is in Chinese domestic and foreign policy, and I've just written a book out through Harvard University Press called One Belt, One Road, Chinese Power Meets the World. That's fantastic. and Well worth reading.
0: Maya, over to you.
2: I'm, Maya I'm the Senior Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, Um, However, my work at the Institute goes much farther than just defense and military affairs. I also lead the Institute's research on China's digital project, the Digital Silk Road.
0: Fantastic. And Jonathan, a quick intro from you, and then you're gonna kick us off. So I look forward to that.
3: Great, thank you. So I'm John Hillman. I direct the Reconnecting Asia Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is a think tank in Washington, DC. And I'm the author of The Emperor's New Road, um, a book on, as you might guess, China's Belt and Road. Um, so just to, to kick us off, um, you know, I, I wanted to provide a little bit of very brief background um, to get us up to speed on where the Belt and Road is today. I think it's, it's pretty interesting, you know, more than seven years on now, we're, we're still asking some pretty basic questions about what the Belt and Road is and what we should do about it. Um, and so let me just provide you know, my two cents on those two questions. So I think the first thing that you have to understand about the Belt and Road, um, it's quite obvious, but I think it remains incredibly important, is that this is Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy vision, announced initially in, in 2013 uh, in two components, an overland belt and somewhat confusingly a maritime road. And since that announcement, it's expanded and expanded, um, if not, you know, every week, then certainly every month. Um, So geographically, it's expanded to include um, dimensions in the Arctic and Latin America. It's expanded to uh, cyberspace and even outer space. And so it becomes analytically kind of difficult to decide what it is we're talking about here. Are we talking about everything that China does outside of China? Are we talking about infrastructure, which is an important piece of the Belt and Road? Often the carrot for countries to participate, often the spoils for Chinese state-owned enterprises and often the soy- the source of our greatest anxieties about what China is actually doing because many of these projects uh, are dual use one of the i think important misperceptions uh, or at least initial misperceptions about the belt and road that uh, is helpful to correct is that this set of activities while it is stemming from this vision put forward by by China's leader is not it hasn't been as centralized and hyper-coordinated as often assumed from outside. Um, and so on the ground, this has actually been a bit more fragmented, sometimes quite chaotic. Um, it's important to understand as we think about, you know, what's going on uh, and, and which actors have influence to, to decide outcomes here. Um, I, I'd, also, I'd also make the point, which um, I believe Ike does in his paper today, that you know, the, the Belt and Road is not dead. Um, there, there has been a very significant decline in activity So peak belt and road years, um, especially if you're looking at the infrastructure dimension of this, were probably 2016, 2017, a pretty significant pullback that actually predates the pandemic. And then the pandemic paralyzing large amounts of activity. Um, But this is not a static um, uh, vision. It continues to change to fit the circumstances of the day. Um, I know we'll talk more about that, but I think you know, one really important change is this increased emphasis on digital infrastructure. And so as we're looking at a smaller pipeline of projects, there is I think an opportunity for greater attention to, to quality control, um, as well as you know, this, digital, this digital dimension playing a, a more important role going forward. Now, what do we do about this? Um, I know Ike I has thoughts on this um, and uh, you know, discusses that in, in the paper that's released today. Um, you know, Personally, I think we have to begin by asking what our own interests are. Um, so that might d- differ depending on what perspective you bring to this, where you sit um, geographically or otherwise. I think we have to look at individual projects and activities um, and not, sit, not paint with a broad brush and say all of this is driven by um, one thing or another. Um, I think projects really do take on a local character depending on where they're happening. Um, and we need to differentiate among projects that are really threatening to core interests and those that are more benign uh, because the world, you know, ultimately the world needs investment in infrastructure and that far exceeds the the ability of any single country, including China, to provide it. I do think we need to compete where it's important, um, where those vital interests are at stake um, and where commercial interests are at stake. Uh, I think we need to strengthen the ability of recipient countries to be their own best advocates, um, especially now as we're looking at really a series of um, cycling uh, renegotiations related to debt issues. Um, and ultimately, I think each country here needs to put forward, and I hope there's potentially uh, you know, an opening here for an allied vision, but we have to put forward our own vision, for uh, you know, our own positive vision that resonates with the developing world uh, in a way in which China's own vision has resonated with the aspirations of the developing world, even despite all of its, uh, its challenges and missteps. Uh, and so ultimately, I think, in a way, the best response to the Belt and Road is, is not necessarily a direct response to the Belt and Road at all. It's to, it's to step back and, and ask what our interests are um, and, and what vision, what positive economic vision do we want to offer the world? So let me let me end there um, and, and, and pass it on. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thanks, John. Well, look, you uh, led us very nicely onto the digital question before we go on to uh, a, a discussion which I hope will include many of the people who are uh, now listening and logging on. We will be taking questions, just in case you're wondering. So you know how to do that by now. I think everybody knows how to do that on Zoom. You a little box on the bottom. So uh, please start thinking of your questions or actually putting them in. Now, Maya, you've done a lot of work on digital uh, Belt and Road and, and, and the various aspects of it. Over to you.
2: Thank you, uh, Tom. So. That's right, so I'll talk about the Digital Silk Road, and I have three main points that I want to speak to, um, to just kind of frame what this uh, construct is. Um, The Digital Silk Road, very much like the Belt and Road Initiative under which it falls, is uh, largely an umbrella term, I would say, and different analysts so far have a different understanding of what it actually entails. Um, It's known by different names in China, including uh, the Digital Silk Road, but also the Information Silk Road, the Digital Belt and Road, and others. Um, There is no one guiding document uh, for the Digital Silk Road that kind of spells out what it is and what it isn't, what the structure of this uh, program is. And there's no one agency in China that holds responsibility over it. So very much echoing what Jonathan said about the Belt and Road Initiative writ large and how that complicates uh, trying to gain some sort of grasp of what this, um, what this project is. Now in terms of the type of categories of investments and, and projects that we look at under the, belt, under the digital Silk Road, we can kind of see this as a maximalist or a minimalist list. I'd say in the maximalist list, which uh, a lot of western observers uh, would note, Uh, we see a a very much anything under the sun approach. So anything that's digital that China does is suddenly part and parcel of the digital silk road. I think that has its own complications for how we then try and respond to that uh, if we see that as as something that we need to uh, counter. But you could take a minimalist and more narrow approach, which is to look at investments and projects and technologies that correspond uh, more or less to the themes of connectivity and economic growth uh, that are put forward in Belt and Road Initiative narratives by the Chinese government, and also in um, policy documents or at least statements related to the digital Silk Road. So anything that relates to those two things in the digital space could be considered. And you have three layers of projects that you could look at under this more minimalist approach. That's infrastructure, so hard connectivity infrastructure like uh, related to 5G or pre-5G networks, uh, data centers, submarine cables, and satellite ground tracking stations, which, of course, are linked to BEIDO uh, satellite GPS uh, systems. Then there's things like city um, services, so smart city infrastructure, surveillance systems, or anything related to public security, um, and of course also cloud-based architecture, and lastly, something called over-the-top platforms. And here we're looking at that digital uh, economy type of uh, project. So, Uh, e-commerce projects, fintech projects, but also e-government platforms. Now, all of this, of course, in this minimalist uh, uh, picture is is very well and good, but of course, there are are increasing uh, investments by Chinese companies in things like AI, Internet of Things, big data, e-health, and frontier technologies that now the Chinese government is openly and vocally supporting. Um, and uh, and pushing out as well. So we get a pretty complicated picture at the end of the day of what this is. Um, Contrary to public uh, and popular belief, uh, this is largely um, an enterprise that is run by Chinese private sector companies. So Chinese um, state-owned enterprises play a relatively small role in the digital Silk Road. Um, They are mostly related to infrastructure projects um, Think of ZTE, China Mobile, and Huawei Marine in terms of network infrastructure or in terms of building um, data centers or submarine cables. But most of the other projects are heavily dominated by the Chinese private sector. Think here of Tencent, Alibaba, and Baidu, but also smaller startup companies as well. And for these Chinese companies, I think it's important to reiterate that Um, The Chinese market is already incredibly saturated for their business and taking business abroad therefore makes commercial sense. Um, But of course that doesn't mean, and here I come to my third point, that politics does not play a role in the digital Silk Road at all. Um, Clearly the Chinese government views ICT technologies and digital technology uh, at large as strategically important to its rise. And we therefore see vocal support for the digital Silk Road as a slogan and as a brand. Um, And we see the growth of Chinese digital technological sectors um, and the companies that dominate them in China as well. We're to date, I think, still uncertain of the exact role that the Chinese government plays in these companies. Um, We know that there's a system of party committees that are embedded in private sector companies in China, whether Western or uh, Chinese owned. Um, We know that the Chinese government has provided subsidies to certain Chinese companies in the ICT sector that has helped them gain the market position they have today um, and has also helped them uh, take advantage of a very advantageous domestic market in China. Um, But we also know that aligning with the digital Silk Road brand might also, therefore, from a company perspective, be beneficial uh, for China's private sector if that would provide them with government support. What further complicates all of this intertwining of public and private in China, of course, is the concept and policy of military-civil fusion that we uh, follow a lot in in our line of work um, at the IISS. And here, we know that this is a whole of country effort um, to bring um, technological innovation, both in the private and uh, and military-related sector together. But again, few clear examples of how this cooperation would work, I think, exists other than anecdotes. Um, And also, we're not quite sure to what extent there's a culture clash between uh, the civilian sector and the military sector, and to what extent that might prohibit uh, a full fusion uh, that the Chinese government seeks. And lastly, of course, what also complicates this is how politics affects commerce in China. So we saw last year with the Halt of the Ant Financials IPO that to some extent the politicization of these uh, projects and this type of, um, uh, of the tech sector in China um, works against the interests of um, the commercial interests of Chinese companies. So it's a big intertwined, complicated picture um, that we're at the is looking at at the moment. We've mapped uh, in a project called China Connects around 1,450 Chinese uh, digital investments globally from 2000 to 2020 that I'd be happy to talk through in the discussion, but um, I'll leave it at that for now.
0: So apologies, that was always gonna happen. Uh, look, thank you very much for that. It's raised a huge number of questions in my mind about um uh, various aspects of the digital uh, highway as it were the digital silk road that i am going to be uh, looking to ask you about including uh, the way that alipay and various other forms of payment mechanism are building a different economic infrastructure but before we come to that ike you've just done a great paper for us and you've got a huge number of things to say on this subject i'm going to just leave it to you to carry on from there
1: thank you tom look these are two tough acts to follow Uh, John and May are two of the colleagues working on this issue whose work I respect most. I would urge you to check out the work that the Reconnecting Asia project has done under John's leadership to map literally thousands of Chinese projects and try to understand how they link up with one another into a continental sized infrastructure network. And then I'd also recommend that you take a look at the work that double I, double S has done and particularly Mayo's writings about these individual aspects that she highlighted here. There's a lot more to say, particularly about this military civil fusion topic um, and they're in print on many of these issues. I'd recommend it all. So what I'd like to do is to take a step back. I don't disagree with anything that was said, but I'd like to add to it a little context as I see things playing out within China, and then to try to sketch out briefly how these impact UK national interests and what the national strategic options might be for responding to this thing. I think if we wanted to synthesize or summarize what Maya and John have just shared with us, it's that this is essentially a very shambolic, haphazardly organized initiative. In fact, it has more in common with a Maoist style mass mobilization than it does with a Marshall Plan, top-down, highly centralized development policy that we would associate with something like the World Bank. But that doesn't mean it's not strategic because as John noted, this is central to Xi Jinping's personal brand in China. It is also central to his legacy. And if you look at the way that uh, Communist Party propagandists are communicating what this project is actually about to domestic audiences, one realizes that infrastructure is only one small part of what the Belt and Road is trying to achieve. This is at heart a project of national rejuvenation and imperial resurrection that has Xi Jinping himself at the core. And what it seeks to rebuild is a semi-imagined, a semi-mythic imperial tributary system whereby China lubricates its relationships with countries on its periphery with trade and investment. In other words, other countries invoke the Belt and Road slogan. They visit Beijing to pay homage to the emperor. And in return, they come away with token gifts, political favors that help them stay in power at home. Uh, I've just written a report on this, citing some Chinese sources. I go into more detail in my book, but I think the evidence is quite clear from a domestic politics point of view that this is what Xi Jinping is trying to do. So this means that even though the volume of Chinese foreign direct investment might have fallen off a cliff in 2020 during the pandemic, that doesn't mean that the Belt and Road as a concept for Chinese uh, national restoration is going anywhere. And in fact, all of the evidence seems to suggest that Xi Jinping and top level bureaucrats are doubling down on the phrase. They're just using the pandemic as an excuse to cut losses on unviable projects and refocus their attention on the most politically effective aspects of this strategy. And I would highlight in addition to the digital aspect, green tech, they talk about a green silk road and a health silk road focusing on vaccines but not only vaccines. So where is this leading? If Xi Jinping is indeed uh, set to rule for several terms to come, uh, this and this is directionally moving in, in a more centralized, Uh, direction, it's becoming more organized, uh, more carefully administered, there are fewer white elephant projects that are doomed to fail, then we have to consider the possibility that whether it's five or 10 or 15 years down the road, this will become something like a China-led geopolitical bloc, not unlike uh, what the Soviet Union built in the latter part of the 1940s. So I think the UK must recognize, first of all, that this is a domestically oriented Chinese scheme, which is bound together with national uh, industrial policy priorities, as well as foreign policy priorities. And that because it poses a threat to the United States on so many different levels and in so many different regional theaters, it's going to be very hard for the UK to change how the United States thinks about this. And so what the UK is facing, in a sense, is a geopolitical competition between the United States and China over many issues related to the Belt and Road, but not only the Belt and Road. And the UK is increasingly put in an untenable position where it has to take sides. Either it needs to align, as, say, Australia has done with the United States in some form of a comprehensive strategy for confronting China, or it should seek out some alternative path such as what the Italians have done by joining the Belt and Road in name but not accepting any big investments into their critical infrastructure or what the Germans have done not accepting the Belt and Road slogan but saying that they will cooperate with China in various economic aspects where their interests align. So I've just written this article uh, for the CRG that makes the point that the UK has to start uh, by taking a hard look at its national power recognizing that it has very few tools to influence the direction of the Belt and Road or the American response, and understanding that as a result, any of the strategic options that it faces is going to entail painful trade-offs because both of the superpowers are going to be competing for the UK's affection and might seek to impose costs on the UK if they don't play along. I'll leave it there and look forward to your questions. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Well, look, um, as our affections are being played for, perhaps I can uh, start off by asking a couple of questions myself. Uh, John, you set out uh, what I think is the most important question really for us, which is, what do we want instead? It's no good turning around and saying, uh, we don't like this. The, the, the only thing that matters, is what are we offering instead? And at the moment, uh, there's a strong argument to say, not that much. Now, I'm sure Ike's gonna have some views on this and so is Mayor. But perhaps I can start with you and just say, what should we be offering? My own view is uh, we should be looking at uh, truth, justice in the American way or uh, a modern updated version of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, WTO, uh, IP rights, privacy and so on. Uh, but what do you think we should be put pitching for?
3: Yeah, I think it is a key question and it is hard to think about what, what the sort of um, alternative should be without talking about trade policy. Um, you know, when I was working at the Office of the US Trade Representative, um, uh, Belt and Road had been announced, but we didn't talk about it really, because we didn't need to. We had a positive um, alternative that we were promoting at the time, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and so I think I do think that trade has to be part of this broader um, economic vision that it, that's being offered. Um, Politically, that that you know has its difficulties, um, but there are still you know trade areas in which cooperation could move forward. Um, it, it's going to take a little bit of creativity. I also think um, you know that there are um, there is already some uh, when we're talking about principles that, that we bring to this. There's some agreement, I think, some some consensus um, in this idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, you know, as a, as something that a framing that implicitly draws a contrast to um, some of what China is doing. But I would add to that, importantly, I think, if I was going to add, you know, one more word to that, um, I'd add sustainability. I think that this is an area, uh, I think environmental sustainability is an area in which uh, the US and and, uh, the UK and other European partners should have more alignment now going forward. I think it's an area in which, China has, has done pretty poorly abroad in other countries, and for which there are already existing um, interest groups. Many of them um, have, have even stopped projects already. And so I feel like there's a natural opportunity there um, to do something that is both positive, um, aligns with our values and our interests, and, and is competitive. Um, you know, it, it's really playing to our advantages. There are other, you know, I would add other things depending on sort of which dimension here that we're talking about. Um, you know, U.S. companies obviously have some strengths in the digital domain, depending on which um, which, you know, uh, facet of the digital Silk Road we're talking about. Um, but l- let me leave it there and uh, welcome any any other comments.
0: Can I perhaps push those other comments just to sort of, uh, in one direction by just reminding that when we set up the general agreement on tariffs and trade, we didn't do so initially in the 1940s uh, in a vacuum. We did so in response to. Uh, well, originally common term, but later uh, uh, the communist trading bloc that was emerging, and so this is clearly an opportunity to look again at our trade policy. And what was TPP is now CPTPP. Uh, I know I'm very keen that the UK should join. Others have different views, but uh, but I'm particularly keen that the US should join. Do you think there's a chance that this new administration will go back into it?
3: So I don't see that happening soon. I think that they're you know given given the fact that we've got a pandemic to contend with um, and, you know, I think some domestic renewal to focus on um, I think those are really immediate priorities. Um, I do think though, that there are other ways in which, you know, a a creative trade agenda could be pieced together and move forward, you know, to include things like e-commerce you know, something that is both touching the trade here and the sort of digital competition. Um, So I don't, I don't think trade is, is off the table. Um, but I think that, that sort of the, the full-scale uh, return to CPTPP um, would be quite
0: difficult. Thank you, um, Mayor. Mike, would you like to would you like to add to that?
2: I can add just on the tech perspective. I think in terms of what we'd like to see, um, well, if we want to be more competitive, we have to invest in this area of, of industry. Right, that's that's the key point here, and we can either do that alone, or we can do that as a, as a grouping of like-minded countries. Um, but this, again, is a story more about ourselves and of China, and, and really, I think, fixing um, some of the, um, the, the problems that have led us to be in this uh, position in the first place. So supporting innovation and industry at home would be point number one. And point number two, I think, would be to look beyond just the 5G technology, um, uh, uh, the 5G discussion to other areas of technology. So if it's telecommunications looking towards 6G and and potentially even 7G, if we can imagine that, um, and already start to lay the groundwork for that instead of trying to catch up in an area that we're probably not gonna catch up on. Um, And so that's in terms of technology, but in terms of values, and I think that's a really important point that Jonathan raised here, I think there's a lot more work to be done again um, within the like-minded community. Um, So, we see, for example, that in terms of data privacy and protection, um, the EU's GDPR regime has been worked into an agreement with Japan, whereby Japan now, um, to some extent, um, adheres to uh, a GDPR-like framework. Um, But on the other hand, uh, look across the uh, the Atlantic, and we see a very different uh, type of um, privacy system in place. So we can all talk about how like-minded countries should come together and, and, and work towards finding a solution to this challenge that China poses. Um, but really, I think we need to also pay attention to the gaps in our current relationships within that like-minded grouping of countries um, and how to bridge that first.
0: So you've raised several issues there that you raised several issues there that um, really ra- go into uh, different ways of approaching this. Perhaps like you'd, you'd make a few comments on that before we move on to
1: a, a separate point. I think all of the points that have been raised in this segment of the discussion have been worthy goals that we should pursue. Clearly, coming out of the pandemic, this leaner, meaner Belt and Road is going to focus more on trade than on investment. And that is intrinsically going to make it more desirable to partner countries because it means that they won't have to take on an enormous amount of risk um, as a prerequisite for getting the political benefits of engagement with China. And the the strengthening of the renminbi that we've seen over the last few months coupled with this new dual dual circulation theory in Beijing which is designed to increase uh, Chinese consumption which means more imports, which means more exports for China's trading partners means that Western countries have to think very seriously about banding together with a common set of rules. Otherwise we are no match for China in terms of setting the rules and conditions of trade. This is particularly true in Southeast Asia, but it's also true in many African and even Latin American countries that now have China, not the United States as their largest trading partner. But I think before we start going and prescribing solutions, I think it's important to understand what our objective has to be. I'm on record saying we need to prevent the Belt and Road from coalescing into a geopolitical block. And I, when I say that, I don't mean that every single country that signed an MOU to affiliate in some way with the Belt and Road is going to be included. But I do mean that China with a select number of partners who have, who have adopted this uh, tech platform uh, structure from whole cloth, accepting Huawei, but also Chinese payments platforms like Alipay and Tencent. Uh, These countries are entering a form of long-term technological dependence on China, which is going to set them up for further consolidation of geopolitical relations in a long-term way that Western countries are going to have a very difficult time reversing. So I think we need to recognize, partic- I say when I say we, I mean, first and foremost, the United States, that when we say to our allies and partners, we would not like you uh, to associate with Huawei or accept it into your 5G infrastructure, uh, you don't get to pick and choose what critical infrastructure you let China into. Uh, many of them are going to say, well, inf- as a matter of fact, we can. And that's why the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Kuwaitis, some of our closest allies in the Middle East, have accepted Huawei into 5G and are letting China into a number of other critical uh, digital systems. So we need to make sure that we are offering an alternative. But we, if our goal is to prevent countries like these that have been long-standing, geographically strategic, but strategic for other, for other reasons, partners of ours, uh, we need to recognize that They are standing atop a very slippery slope that will lead with technological entanglement with Beijing. And we need to keep them from taking that first step and find measures that are not coercive to keep them from taking that first step.
0: Now, before I open it up to, uh, we're getting quite a lot of questions in. So before I open it up, I'm gonna be greedy and ask one last one, uh, which is maybe a brief answer from from the three of you. Don't feel you have to answer it, but from the three of you. Why are we resisting this? Why don't we just say, hey, Belt and Road works for everyone? This is the new global standard. Uh, let's accept Huawei, let's accept uh, all these different rules and norms. It's a Chinese world and we just live in it. Sean, over to you, perhaps.
3: Thanks. Because I think a lot of these activities um, don't adhere to international norms as they've already been established. You know, a lot of this project activity is happening without transparency, um, which is you know, increasing the number of projects that go ahead that shouldn't go ahead at all. It's increasing corruption. Um, it's increasing the environmental damage, uh, social consequences of, of projects that um, haven't been, you know, the risk hasn't been handled correctly at the beginning of the process. Um, and so, you know, I think there's some learning going on as, as China's making these mistakes, um, but it isn't as if there is no existing. You know, international um, benchmark. I mean, there is. We have multilateral institutions that have um, you know pretty robust ways of um, you know doing investment, uh, of doing projects, and a lot of these activities um, do not adhere to those standards.
0: Well, you don't. The other two, you don't have to. You don't have to answer. But uh, do you have a response?
1: I'm quite happy to leave it there if you wish. I would to. chip in. I would chip in briefly. I think this is a question that countries like the UK have to ask continually, because while it seems likely, as a long-standing ally of the United States, that the UK's instincts would be to follow its most important partner in resisting this thing, uh, the British people should not take for granted that what is right for the United States is right for the UK, particularly in a post-Brexit world where the UK doesn't have uh, the luxury of a a band of European friends and partners in quite the way it used to. So I think there is a possibility that affiliating with the Belt and Road in a way that preserves autonomy for the UK's uh, policymaking and protects UK critical infrastructure uh, from Chinese access that this, there's there's actually a way that this could be configured that would work for the UK, that would give the UK uh, geopolitical bargaining power over the United States. I don't think necessarily that that's an option that should be chosen lightly. It obviously comes with a whole slate of downside risks, including tail risks. But I think if if the British people want to uh, truly have the ability to cut their own path in a, in a world post Brexit, they need to consider all of their options because hey, John is right now, but what happens if in five years the Belt and Road becomes professionalized and it starts abiding by international standards and they do environmental impact assessments and the rest? Does that mean that it's okay to join? Maybe and maybe not. Uh, and this is, this is some, a, a hard reckoning that's going to have to take place over just how much, how vulnerable the UK would like to, to make itself to China in order to enjoy the fruits of access to of the Chinese economy. Thank you very much, Maya.
2: I just add that also, I mean, from the tech perspective and, and with regards to digital Silk Road, because it was a harsh wake up call that um, in some areas of industry, we've somehow fallen behind and, and, and dropped the ball a little bit. Um, so in terms of competition and commercial interest, um, it is important to, to pay attention to this and to think of uh, ways in which we don't end up in this situation again in the future.
0: Well, thank you very much. I've been extremely greedy. So uh, perhaps I should bring in somebody else. And I'm very lucky that uh, my colleague a fellow chair of a committee, uh, chairing uh, the Intelligence and Security Committee, is Julian Lewis, MP. So Julian, over to
4: you. So um, I'd just like to ask, um, how influential are the ambassadors recruited by China in the West to promote Um, their policies, uh, such as Belt and Road, proving to be. Um, It strikes me inherently as a dangerous situation where you can have former ministers, um, in one case, a fairly recent former prime minister, being paid very large sums of money um, to promote the Chinese strategic option of encouraging their own countries to allow this form of investment and indeed this form of subsidized undercutting of um, British industry. Um, Do you think that um, this is money well spent by the Chinese or do you think that um, this is a really effective way of them promoting in the West their strategic games in China.
0: Who would you like to ask that to, Julie?
4: Whoever feels uh, willing to stick their neck out and uh, express an opinion. And if none of you feel able to to comment on it, I I don't mind at all.
1: I would note briefly that this is not a new thing. In fact, uh, the documentary series that introduced Belt and Road to the Chinese people on CCTV in 2016 Uh, featured not only Vladimir Putin and Henry Kissinger, uh, but also the former prime ministers of Australia, France, and Italy. So this has been a longstanding effort to boost the legitimacy of the initiative. I think that the the fanfare around the Belt and Road forums in Beijing, in which many of China's trade partners feel pressure to send delegations, even if they don't agree with what the Belt and Road is trying to do, is definitely a, a form of diplomatic flex. But I do think if one looks at the propaganda, what they call the exoprop, the external propaganda across countries, it is striking just how little effort has been put into articulating what this is uh, to Western audiences and persuading them that it's not nefarious. In fact, in in the early days before it was even named one Belt One Road, many senior officials in China considered calling it a Chinese Marshall Plan, specifically because they thought that the Anglo-American community would find that unthreatening. And they specifically decided to go with the Chinese historical illusion instead. Uh, So I think they're offering a very different pitch for this to their own people, to Western audiences, and then to the the potential partners who they're most interested in recruiting, which are in fact people in less developed countries. Those I think are their strategic focus and always have been.
3: I guess I would just add briefly, You know, the Belt and Road brand is not doing great. Um, you know, it's been really pretty tarnished by China's own actions. You know, it hasn't been there hasn't been a propaganda campaign against against China here. It's China, Chinese actions on the ground have tarnished the Belt and Road brand. Um, you know, concerns about actual impacts. Um, you know, on debt sustainability, on on the environment, um, on local communities not having economic the economic benefits that are promised. Uh, not even getting the projects that are promised. I think that there's sort of belt and road fatigue among some of the participants. Um, and I think you see that in you know a sort of a, uh, fewer mentions of this, you know, in the most recent seventeen plus one meeting, now sixteen plus one, which I think says another you know important point about the the sort of support for these uh, efforts declining. Um, and, and you know, Chinese surveys actually of of sort of brand recognition here of, uh, who recognizes the Belt and Road? Have you heard of the Belt and Road? Um, the the uh, recognition of Belt and Road is highest in um, India. And I think we can guess sort of what the connotation is. It's not a positive connotation for those that, that know it um, uh, or have heard of it. So I think that, you know, I think spending on uh, former officials is probably um, more a sign of dep- desperation and a recognition that the brand really hasn't been doing very well.
0: Thank you very much. That's, a, that's a certainly an interesting perspective, given the challenges that they're facing and the, uh, the number of names that we're seeing lining up in, the, in a well in a way that certainly questions uh, the wisdom of some of the people who are lining up to endorse. Um, can we go to Matt Turpin, please? Matt's an old friend, and so I'm, I'm being very biased. I'm, I'm
5: putting him in now. Well, Todd, thank you, and, uh, and, and great event. Um, really appreciate it. So, yeah, I, I'm as I, as I listen to you, you all just kind of describe this, there's this sort of common running through theme of sort of the lack of alternatives, right. That, you know, one of the, the, the initial narratives about Belt and Road was that, that, that the market for, you know, in uh, capital to invest in infrastructure was simply, you know, insufficient to the need. Um, and that's a similar sort of theme that, that you get from, uh, you know, in a, you know, and kind of a blur your eyes, kind of, of aspect around telecom or fintech, that the rest of the world just isn't there providing alternatives. And and I want to push back and maybe sort of get your all's reaction on on whether that's true. Is it is it true that the rest of the world doesn't provide alternatives in terms of infrastructure spending, uh, where there are bankable projects that meet sustainable goals, uh, that that there simply aren't the functions that make that, that uh, be able to work, um, you know, for the telecom sort of space, you know, it's, 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 it's completely arguable whether or not there weren't alternatives available to countries. You know, in fact, you know, we had seen companies, uh, you know, move back into the market, you know, as soon as countries made decisions about blocking Huawei or ZTE, you know, Japan, you've got NEC and Fujitsu moving back into, Telecom manufacturing. Uh, once those actions are taken, so yeah, just I wanted to see to get your reaction on whether or not you know the the broader narrative of of sort of a failure of the market to provide for infrastructure capital is actually a, a true one or not. So I'm ha- happy to offer a few brief thoughts. Um, you know, I
3: think first of all, if you talk to you know, people in infrastructure finance, they will tell you you know that the problem from their perspective. Um, isn't, isn't um, you know, necessarily a lack of um, access to capital. Um, they have, you know, there's plenty of capital that could be deployed. It is a lack of bankable projects, right? And so you know, they, they just don't see projects, um, enough projects out there for which they could get returns commensurate with whatever that risk is. Um, China has been willing to, to do projects and take on much more risk. Um, and so there's, I think no question that there is a global demand for infrastructure when you, when you bro- drop it down to the project level though, projects that are ready to go and are easy choices are hard to find. And they're harder to find years after lots of belt and road activity. So put yourself in the shoes of, you know, someone at the China Development Bank or China XM Bank, you know, the low hanging fruit has been picked uh, and some of it, you know, it turns out it was rotten. Um, and so I think that, that that is an important dynamic. I do think in the telecom space, we have to acknowledge that Huawei grew, grew not only through state support um, and you know, alleged uh, uh, intellectual property theft, but also by going to markets that were largely ignored by Western companies that were pretty comfortable doing business um, in sort of uh, basically wealthy democracies. You know, so Huawei really um, learned and grew by going into um, emerging markets. Um, and even you know, in its sort of later days um, was starting to do projects in rural America where some of those same, um, same dynamics applied. Um, and so, I think you know the state support element there is is really important, um, but there definitely is a demand. I think that that is being filled with some of this. That's why I think it's really important that um, the, the U.S. and its allies think about what it is you know that that we are uh, have to offer the developing world, where most of the world's population and economic growth is going to occur. So I just I feel like the first phase of our response to Huawei has been really focused on, um, you know banding together wealthy democracies. That's a good place to start, but that can't be, that can't be all of it.
0: Well, that's an interesting point. I noticed, forgive me, I'm going to pick up a question that's been asked down the chat board, and maybe, um, well, in fact, maybe, Mayor, you could pick up some of it as well, because um, Jay von Minto um, from Jamaica asks that isn't this a failure uh, of uh, other countries investing in the various different forms of infrastructure around the world? And certainly, if you speak about the Commonwealth and Commonwealth Development Bank and various other different forms of investment that have been suggested. I'm sure I'm not alone in wondering whether there isn't a gap in the market here created fundamentally uh, by us, by not investing in many of the developing countries, by not uh, filling those gaps uh, that presented themselves. Uh, Did we let ourselves down as it were? Did we create an opening? Certainly on digital, you can see how um, not sponsoring Nokia, Ericsson, Cisco. I mean, one can run through a number of different companies here. One creates an opening for uh, Huawei. What do, what do you think, Mayor?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that points back to one of the earlier um, statements I made in my opening remarks that we, we have uh, to some extent dropped the ball on, on, on digital tech. Um, but going back to, I mean, the financing question is really interesting when it comes to digital projects that China um, has around the world. Certainly when it comes to hard infrastructure, we see a role played by policy banks that are then able to um, provide loans and, and support these projects in the more risky um, uh, business uh, environments um, for Chinese telecoms companies. But on the other hand, um, you know the vast majority I think of uh, digital projects by Chinese companies uh, uh, moving forward are not going to be in that hard infrastructure space. They're going to be more and more in the services and platform space, where Chinese companies themselves in the private sector are able to um, embark on these projects without actually needing policy bank support. And that's reflected in the data that we've collected. Um, And certainly, I just wanted to make a point on on this pushback um, that we've seen in in the digital sphere. Um, From our data set, at least, if you look at all of the 5G projects that you have, Chinese participation in uh, around the world at the moment, um, we've only seen pushback in around 15% of those projects, which is not a very high amount and definitely not as high as I think we might expect, one might expect um, if, if we listen to certain other um, analyses um, or, or policy statements. So in that sense, there still is a market for Chinese tech. There still is a market for Chinese digital investment that we're not tapping into. And that could be because we can't, or that could be because we won't.
0: Thank you very much indeed to the three of you. Now, Stu, you're on uh, line, I think, Uh, over to you. Uh,
3: Great, thanks guys. Um, Besides, Going to places where Western companies won't. I'm I'm, I'm interested into how um, as to why Chinese companies are winning so many infrastructure projects, especially in a competitive market. So uh, you, you just talked about financing. What are the specific tools? What are the subsidies? What is the China Development uh, Bank able to offer that uh, the U.S. Exxon Bank or another Exxon Bank can't? And are there any? Is there anything that a Western country can do to offer a competitive alternative right now? So I think it you know it depends to some extent on the the activity that we're talking about. I mean I think one just one very big distinction between um, U.S. Uh, XM and uh, China XM is just the scale. I mean the the scale is just not comparable at all. And so there is just a, a lot a lot more financial firepower there uh, being put to use. Um, and it's not it's not as much. Um, you know, I think the sort of old narrative on Chinese state support was that it's subsidies, you know, subsidies are still um, somewhat important, but this financing is incredibly important. Um, access to capital is really important. Um, and it's it's a very powerful sweetener for countries thinking about um, what offer to take um, because, you know, just given, given finite resources. Um, and so I think, um, you know, the, the U.S. And, and others are going to be more competitive um, in, in certain types of, if we're talking about infrastructure, certain types of infrastructure. Um, China has seven of the world's 10 largest construction companies. You know, we're not, they're incredibly competitive on, you know, building uh, transport and energy projects, um, just the scale that they have and now quite a bit of experience too. And, and they end up being competitive even in these open processes, as you indicate. Um, But there is still, I think, a demand for, um, you know, not getting all your infrastructure from one provider. Um, There's also, I think, ways in which um, U.S. and other offers can become more competitive, depending on the assumptions that you make, depending on the accounting, basically, that the recipient country is doing. You know, are they considering the full lifecycle cost of a project, um, you know, to include not only the upfront sticker on it, but also what it costs to operate and maintain you know, there are examples of countries like Papua New Guinea getting a data center from Huawei where they didn't budget for operations and maintenance, and now the place isn't running anymore. Um, and so there, I think there are, um, there are ways in which some of these uh, Western offers can be more competitive if they're evaluated um, more holistically and not just on that upfront cost.
1: If I could jump in here briefly, because I think this is a very important point that John has made that belies the Trump administration's narrative about Belt and Road as a debt trap. And this is the more you start to stand in the shoes of a, an official in a recipient country and think about how they are thinking about their domestic and regional objectives and how the Belt and Road on a conceptual level and on a project level fits into that, the more it makes sense why they would want some form of open-ended relationship with China. Uh, the famous example of Hamatota, which someone asked about in the, the question tab, is a great example. This is something that the Rajapaksa regime wanted for a number of reasons, both domestic, because it was going to bring home the bacon to Rajapaksa's hometown, an economically disconnected, underdeveloped part of the country, but also because it was going to provide geopolitical leverage on a regional and a global level. It was a hedge against Indian interference in Sri Lankan domestic politics it was a hedge against the united states holding rajapaksa account to account for crimes committed during the horrendous sri lankan civil war and first this project was shopped around to the japanese and a bunch of multilateral development banks they passed because it was simply too high risk relative to the interest rate that the sri lankans were willing to pay and finally the chinese picked it up and so it made a lot of sense from a Sri Lankan point of view when, and I, I, I trace this as in some detail. I remember that John and I met when we were both going there to visit the, the site. When you talk to local officials, the reason why they were not disappointed that this thing flopped and was handed over to China was that, that ultimately they weren't evaluating the success or the failure of the project. Uh, on terms that you could see on a balance sheet, it was much more conceptual and related to the very, very specific details of how Sri Lankan domestic politics works with patronage and complex alliance networks and so forth. And so I think when we try to understand what it would take to compete with China uh, globally, we have to understand that we're playing in very specific regional markets. And if we want to offer a better offer than the Chinese, it's not just about the interest rate or the grace period or so forth. It's also about all of the implicit guarantees that go into paying off local constituency groups. And sometimes we might be willing to make those offers. And sometimes it is simply things that we are not willing to do. And we should be willing to step back and let China take on that risk and find other ways to keep those officials or those countries from sliding into geopolitical dependence on the Chinese.
0: Fantastic, thank you very much indeed. Now, one last question, if we may. We have a former British diplomat in Beijing and uh, somebody who has also written for the China Research Group, Charlie Parton. Charlie, uh, over to
4: you. Uh, it, it was more a comment, Tom, than, than, than a question. Uh, and relates to the question, what well, how difficult it is to say what the Belt and Road is. You you can get rid of that difficulty if you accept that it doesn't actually exist. It's a propaganda term, a slogan.
0: I think we're going to cut it there, but I think I got your point, Charlie, which is that the, the Belt and Road isn't really a thing. It's more of a slogan uniting uh, various aspirations and and a propaganda term rather more than a rather more than a, a genuine construct, a genuine plan. So less a Marshall plan, more a more a, more a global Britain slogan. Well, look, let's. Um, uh, there's there's various points that that raises of course uh, would you uh, would you agree with that mayor
2: i mean clearly uh, for my presentation i said there there doesn't seem to be a digital silk road planned out document somewhere and i doubt for the Belt and Road initiative there's a map somewhere in a wall in beijing that has plotted this out for the next two decades to come so in that sense um sure but the fact is that there is investment uh wide-scale investment in the digital sector at least um, where uh, Chinese companies are increasingly competitive. And that raises all sorts of questions about how we should be responding to this and how we, sh- we, should, and how we should prevent being on the back foot uh, continuously but actually take initiative and, and be more proactive in the future in these areas of investment.
0: Would anybody else have a view on, on, on that? I think, I, think, I think there's a general agreement from the way that we've been talking about it. Look, I'm going to, um, I'm going to stop there and thank our participants because it's, it's just a few minutes to six, and while we like to start on time and finish on time, can I say thank you very much to everybody who has joined us, to everybody who is watching this either live or will be watching it later. Um, it is a huge pleasure, again, to have such uh, fantastic speakers, to John and to Ike and to Maya who brought an extraordinary level of insight and knowledge. And I'm going to plug it again. If you haven't read Ike's paper, it is available on Chinaresearchgroup.org, which is our website. If you go there, please do sign up to our newsletter. Now, our next session uh, that's planned is actually for a little while, because we've got uh, a bit of a gap uh, and various other things going on. Uh, and so the next session is with uh, the former foreign secretary and now my colleague as chair of the health committee Jeremy Hunt so that is on the 15th of April there may be other things coming in between we've got a few we've got a few irons in various fires so i will let you know but as always please follow us on twitter sign up to our newsletter and join us again and with that thank you very much indeed to Mayor, to john and to ike i'm hugely grateful their insight and kindness this afternoon.